Well, we're here at MythCon 44 with some students from the MythGuard Institute, and I'm going to go around the table and have everybody introduce each other. And we are in the bar, in case you didn't know. So there are going to be there that is going to be some external noise here. So my name is Laura Burkholz, and I'm the only one here who did not present a paper. You're a professional audience member. Somebody needs to be in the audience, and you know, so that was me. So we're going to start with with Chris. Okay. Hi, I'm Chris Swank, and I gave a paper called "Good Plain Food: Diet and Virtue in the Fantasies of Tolkien and Lewis." And basically, it examined what good characters eat versus bad characters in Middle Earth and Narnia. Oh wow! Oh wow! I didn't know there was a difference. There, there is, and you'll have to read my paper what's, to find give, out. What's one example of like a good and a bad? Uh, Locavorism is the key. Oh, okay. Interesting. You were there. What? You know, locavorism, eating what local is, food oh rather locavorism. than rather than imported, imported food. It's very oh, important to both okay. authors. Okay. Interesting. Like, what did what did Sauron eat? We're not quite sure because he was just an eye. <laughs> and as someone pointed out the other day, where how does he wear the ring if he ever got it? But um, but Saruman is a very good example. He goes to the Shire and takes all the pipeweed and the food and, right. the, and the Has beer. It and exports it all to Isengard, uh, and that shows that he's decadent. And Shift the Ape is the ah. same way in Narnia. He has oranges and bananas imported from Kellerman, and, and Puzzle the Donkey says, nobody else wants that kind of food. You're the only one. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So, food. so yeah. it's very important yeah, it's really cool. for them to have local food. All right. Okay, well, our coffee is here, so... Say hello to the people that we're podcasting to. Hi. <laughs> Do you <laughs> like Jennifer. 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 We We're do. all drinking dirty we'll take 4, <laughs> All right, so... Um, my name is Dan Kinney, and I gave a paper entitled The Musical Heart of the Lands of Narnia and Middle-Earth, uh, and it was basically taking a look at the cosmogonical stories of both Narnia and Middle-Earth and how music uh, is used in both of those stories and uh, also taking a look at the difference um, in the way that both those lands were created. So that was what my paper was on. Cosmogonical. I thought she was a professor at Hogwarts. (laughs) She was. She turns into a cat. That was a very good paper. I I sat through that, too, and it was... It was mediocre, I bet. Mm. He's being too modest. He's being modest. He saw some things um, in in, uh, Narnia and the Magician's Nephew that most people don't see. See, one thing to know about Dan is whenever Dan is in a course where he has to write a paper, he gnashes his teeth and beats his breast as we're trying to get the paper written. And then I'm sure it's always a great paper. Well, I don't know. No more word limits, professors. No more word limits. So what did you use in, a, in an example in your um, paper? What did you do? Well, about? I, uh, well I, I looked, obviously, at the creation stories, and both of them use music as an agent of creation or revelation, um, as in Narnia. But I also related that back to... Um, other creation stories of ancient cultures and of other cultures taking a look at how worlds are created or revealed um, and seeing how music came into play with those. But uh, Is it a pretty common theme? Actually, music, I had a really hard time finding ones that use music really? as an agent of creation, which I was surprised. I thought I'd find more. Um, there was actually a Native American 
uh, legend that uses music as that. But what I found that tra uh, traversed all of them is that there's usually one or two elements present before an actual creation occurs. Uh, okay. You know, unlike the you know the Big Bang Theory where everything just happens from right. nothing. <clears throat> everything starts out with at least you know waters existing and something comes from the waters or or uh, land existing and something coming from the land or even a deity existing and the deity creates from that. So there's always at least something in existence without it being completely empty. So that's, that's fairly common. But music itself uh, is not that common in creation. That mythology. is surprising. At least the ones I found. There's probably some out there. So. Interesting. All right. Well, the, the listeners can chime in if they know of any creation stories. That's right. Yes, let me know, because I could develop yeah. it more. So. That's, That's right. right. That's right. Okay. My name's Ryan Joy. I did my paper titled Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Picard's Humanity. And what I did was I used quotes from Jean-Luc Picard about humanity in Star Trek and sort of applied that to Frankenstein's creature in discussing whether or not uh, the creature to explore the creature's humanity in a sort of a new and different angle than has been previously done before. So. Now, this line, this line of thought actually came from you doing the... Um, um, science fiction science part fiction one, part one class, right? Yeah. Right. The prompt was essentially boils down to, uh, you know, write a thousand-word paper discussing the creature's humanity. And I thought, well, I did that in high school, and I did that in undergrad, <laughs> and I need to figure out a new and more interesting way to uh, explore the topic. So, Interesting. Yeah, so that's what, what I did. What quotes did you use? I used some quotes from uh, an episode of called Pen Pales, which he was talking to Data about uh, friendship and compassion. And then I used another one, he was talking to Worf, and I don't remember the quote off the top of my head mm -hmm. right now. Uh, but then I spent considerable time on the episode Measure of a Man, where they trying to determine whether or not Data is sentient and whether oh, or not he should have rights. Where they right. actually went to court, yeah. Yeah. So Frankenstein was in a courtroom drama, so it was a little bit more difficult to kind of <laughs> decide, but I think it's clear that he was sentient, the creature. The creature. So, um, yeah, in the in the end, I, I, I sort of basically say that it's really hard to define humanity, but it seems that these two works really speak to each other, and they're Mary Shelley was doing in the 1800s is still relevant, a relevant question that's still being addressed today in a 20th century space-oriented television show. Wow. So, All right. Very yeah. cool. Interesting. All right. And Trish. And Trish. Trish Lambert. I gave, and I, I don't I don't think I'll get the title right, the, the, the Cosmogonies of Narnia and Middle-earth. And how, let's see, there's something about the respective cosmogonies of, and how they affect grief and hope in the environment. It took up three lines on my... You got it. Go. Okay. <laughs> that was it. And this also actually originated as a prompt in the Tolkien Lewis class in the spring of 2012, but that prompt was specifically about how was evil, you know, evil originated in the two worlds. And I, I kind of went beyond that because, you know, the evil origin and then the grief that comes from that evil and then how does hope arise from that grief. And in comparing the two worlds, I think basically, you know, the different, the, the most obvious difference is an is a imminent deity figure as an Aslan who is invocable, who is, you know, tangibly and intangibly present versus Middle Earth where, you know, there are tangible 
sort of uh, presence, at least early on, but as time goes by and by the time we get to the War of the Rings, they're just not. I mean, there's Elbereth is invoked, but, you know, there's no expectation that any of the Valar are going to be showing up, and, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the motivation to go on against all odds, and the odds are enormously bad in so many instances, you know, what causes that? And I actually cited two particular characters um, of that both experienced tremendous loss. One is Elrond over his 6,500-year lifespan in Middle-earth and how much loss he he experienced, more so, I think, than any other elf. And then Sam in the moment in Tirith Ungol when he believes Frodo is dead and that he's really literally the only person left from the Fellowship and what should he do. And, um, you know, it required really getting, I felt it required us really getting down into where the characters are so that we don't stay at the omniscient narrator level and we don't, you know, include our knowledge of what else is going on in Middle-earth at the time. So anyway, so that, um, I, I really came down to, I think, the the motivation of Middle-earth just seems to be sort of the moral courage, you know, doing the right thing, doing it because you said you would, and, um, uh, you know, fighting the good fight, even in the, you know, in the in the face of, uh, of you know, hopeless odds. And I understand I made several people cry in my audience, which yeah. I suppose is... There were just a few. Yeah. There were a few teary-eyes. Teary-eyes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So did I guess you... that's a, you know, good thing. And she's including <laughs> herself. Yes, I almost <laughs> did. And when I read the last quote, I almost did yeah. cry. Did you touch on you catastrophe at all? I, I, wasn't I did not. To, no, I, I didn't. Sure you know, and I also left out... <laughs> There was a lot. It was like Ryan says I could do an extended edition. I mean, there was a lot of other things that could be talked about in this topic, and you know, I just I wanted to kind of keep us focused in on because truly, and I thought about you catastrophe, but the thing is, the characters don't know about you catastrophe. Yeah, that's you know true. themselves. It's like I made a ground where early on where we can't talk about Tolkien and Lewis. <laughs> you know, it's like we need to talk about the characters oh, that's themselves, right, yeah. and they don't really know about you catastrophe, and yeah. they don't know to expect the eagles to arrive. You know, that's and right. so it's like in that case. You know, if, and you know, it's, it, it was you catastro- catastrophic that Frodo actually was still alive. Mm-hmm. But what I really wanted to focus on was the moments what when the Sam believed he was themselves. dead. Yeah. 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 yeah, before the hope comes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's interesting that the, the most you could argue Sam is the most lowly of all the characters. You know, he's the most earthy. He was a gardener, the least educated. He is the one who can carry through. He's sort of naturally buoyant. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And I say, even when, I mean, this could Sam experience a greater loss than Frodo's death on this mission? And if you think about Denethor, he's the opposite end of the spectrum. He's probably, except for Aragorn, the highest person. That's right, that's true. And he can't deal with anything. And he can't deal with anything. He loses hope utterly. He thinks he knows everything. Sam knows he doesn't know. And that's what's so interesting, I think, about, you know, and Ryan asked me, you know, like, I mean, will I develop it further? I'm like, oh yeah, I think I should develop it further because there's, you know, the whole pride issue that Tolkien brings up over and over again throughout his whole legendarium and the effect that pride can have. And you know, Sam is upset. I'm sure Corey will be thrilled to hear that I'm focusing so much on Sam. (laughs) But this is prior to his even discussion, you know, his inner dialogue about the ring. This decision to go on precedes that, and it even precedes him seeing the star and. You know, mm-hmm. getting yes. hope from the file. I mean, this is, he makes his decision to go on before any of that stuff. And it's like, you know, I just, I got goosebumps talking about it. I just find it really inspirational. It's a really interesting approach that you take from, 
I mean, we're all at the 50,000 foot level looking at these characters. Exactly. And you went right down to like the three inch level, you know? <laughs> like yeah. like Which, Frodo's face. <laughs> and that's deep reading right there. There you go. Yeah, so. there you go. Thanks so much. And, you know, this, the thing is with Narnia, it wasn't as. I couldn't do as close a. Uh, who was it else said, you know, you can't do as close a comparison because the hopelessness in Narnia, like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is where the greatest loss comes when Aslan yeah. is killed, is very short lived, right. which I think for a children's story is probably appropriate. Um, but you don't have that hopelessness. And then once Aslan is resurrected, that hope never really dies. Yeah. Even he though he doesn't show up over the centuries. Aslan. Plus, yeah. there's I mean, always the, Pevensies, the faithful. The Pevensies aren't really the ones who right. would, you know have anything lost from them because they can right. always go back they England. can always go back so you know and that's told from their perspective mm-hmm. so they don't you know don't, that they're going to get back to England at this back. point well, that's they true think they that's true stuff. <clears throat> but there's not a lot of internal dialogue no. in Narnia but if you have no. any Christian background with that story you right. know that um, illusion you know you know what's coming like you right. know well and also, he's coming back I think in the future stories too because I know there's some stories where Aslan has not been present for many centuries and yeah. even in the last battle time I think you know he's been mm-hmm. gone for a long time and people are starting to lose faith so I think really if I extended it back out if I had invited the authors back in again you know to my paper I think you know mm-hmm. what Lewis was really going for was the power of faith yes. and that hope really comes from that faith where Tolkien really didn't you know surprisingly enough I think um, you know, given his own personal background, he was, he was, you know, we've talked before about how he sort of keeps it out because he makes clear this is a pre-Christian world. It is still surprising to me that he doesn't bring in, you know, he still is of the Well, it's almost northern, more, the, yeah, the Nordic tradition yeah. that you just follow through. Exactly. Even if there's no hope at all, you know, you yeah. can it. And I, I, I have not done this so far, but I will say that this paper has made me want to read John Garth's book about Tolkien and the First War because I think some of this some of this has come from his experiences both directly in that yeah. war and probably also in World War II with his son yeah. so so stay tuned because I will probably develop this further <laughs> it may show up in other iterations yeah. so again you now have the Spark Notes edition and the extended edition <laughs> the right. paper. paper right. we, we heard some other good talks yes yes um, is there any that you guys want to mention or talk about? Well, Andy's, was, Andy's was good. Oh, yes. yes. Andrew Higgins, who's b- busy schmoozing with... Uh, with Hammond and Skull. Hammond He's and rubbing Skull. elbows. We couldn't pull him away. Yeah. So. Rubbing shoulders with greats. That's well, right. Andy did what Andy does very well, which is look at a word origins in, in Tolkien's language, and he just really drills down. And, you know, I talked to him afterwards, and, you know, he said that what he's really focusing on, and I think this is really good, is the early years. You know, he's looking more in the 19-teens and early 20s. He right, really doesn't very go early formation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I told Andy, I said, you know, we all know, because Tolkien said this in letters and whatnot, that, you know, Middle Earth started, or the legendary started as, as, as a language. Mm-hmm. But I've never really thought about that. And That's I think right. what Andy's paper really opened up for me is, it really did start with the language. I mean, Andy That's went right. through, you know, word roots and how, you know, what words mean and stuff. And I'm thinking, maybe I should actually get into this, you know, language stuff because well, you can learn most, a lot more about. The most interesting revelation for me was that Tolkien actually took that word from the pre-Celtic um, language of Britain, mm-hmm. the word "ond." Yes. Which he turned into Gond for stone. Right. It's the only word, or one of the only two words we still have that we still know of, as if that was a, a fairy language in reality. 
And it's kind of built from that. That was really interesting. That's right. And I totally envy Andy because he has access to the Bodleian Library and all the papers there. So he was sharing with us some of the stuff he was able to see that those of us outside the pale cannot see. <laughs> and in bringing that back with the, you know the those two words from the ancient language, you know a lot of times, at least myself, you know when you're reading Tolkien, you forget that Middle Earth is supposed to be Earth. You know, right. It, 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 right. So that. That bringing real-world examples reinforces that idea. Where sometimes you read Tolkien, you're like, "Oh, this is you know another world," right, but it's right. really not. And especially at that time period too, because I yeah. think in the teens and early twenties, Tolkien still, still was very much thinking way. it was England yes. and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. trying to equate place names and things like that. Yeah. And then I enjoyed Verlin's Flieger's talk on um, trees, and I can't remember the whole. Do trees behave? Do trees behave? Or do they? How they behave? How they behave? Or do they? Yeah. And the thing that was really interesting for me with that was that um, she shared with us sort of dead ends that she reached in her research, which, you know, being kind of a newbie presenter, I'm thinking, well, you're not supposed to do that. You know, you're supposed to act like you've got it all together and, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. But it was edifying. I mean, the fact that, you know, it's only Burling can do probably. Or um, she, I think she actually, I got a lot from even the dead ends that she reached. Oh, yeah. So she talked about spirits in the trees and um, talked about Old Man Willow and Treebeard and then spent a lot of time on the Hoorns. The Hoorns, yes, and the origin of the name Hoorn and, uh, you know... What exactly are how they? How mysterious and, they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We don't know how they move. We don't know what they yeah, are. And at some point she's talking about how the name means talking or lip smacking or something and just, which would be great except they don't talk <laughs> it was just a very funny moment I think one of the things that I hadn't really realized that she brings up is when Tolkien doesn't have, has something that he can't explain he puts the dialogue in Mary it has oh, Mary yeah. talk yes, about it very, yeah Mary yeah yeah exactly mm-hmm. the authoritative source of BS I guess yeah. yeah well you know and I thought about that too because I guess you know I thought you know I, it's like I never really questioned but she brought up the fact that we really don't know much about them that there's reference to the dark places in the in the forest, but she, he, we never really know. Well, are those the horns or are they not? Or right, and are they ants that have become treeish or trees that have become entish? And we don't we really know the, know yeah, the answer to that. Yeah, a lot of and speculation. I think about it, all the times I've ever read it. I just have always just taken it as okay. This is you know. I mean, I've well, never really questioned it. It's nice because it's a little bit of mystery. Right. I think Tolkien explained a lot of things, but he was wise enough to know that you still need some mystery in there. You right. need some mm-hmm. things that aren't fully explained. <clears throat> Which is like the well, good and bad because it's good because that way it keeps you keeps you, you know, thinking about, you know, what he meant. It keeps your mind uh, activated or whatever. Um, but it also can cause a lot of arguments between people. <laughs> and it keeps the whole Tolkien scholarship industry That's running. Right. That's true. Yeah. Little we did he know, everything. right? In yeah. fact, who was it? Somebody said to me, I don't know if it was Ryan or somebody else, who knew, you know, did he know that years from writing this that there would be, you know, controversies about things? Oh, I bet he would be appalled. <laughs> I don't know. He might be tickled. He might be tickled. Might be tickled. Well, he was, in the, he was in the English department, so he knew that there yeah. was controversies mm-hmm. about previous authors. And on a weekly basis, he and his fellow Inklings, I'm sure, had many controversies that they sure. argued over. So. I'm sure they did. The other thing that I found interesting, and I may have known this in the past, I don't remember, but the fact that Treebeard originally wasn't a giant 
Yeah, she and said that. And on the other side. And on the other side, that's right. Mm -hmm. On Sauron's side. And, and, and captured Gandalf and Fangorn right. for us. I think that was awesome how she made that you know transition. You could see it and hear about it. Like You can see him go from giant to, to end. And that yes. was a very awesome picture, like the descriptions that she used that she pulled from Tolkien. That was really cool. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then Doug Anderson brought up this story that nobody's ever heard of. Yeah, that wrote, author, yeah. was the author's name? Well, either Wrigley, Guy Ridley John, or Wrigley. We don't. Guy Ridley. We have to Ridley. look him up. Yeah, I looked and up Ridley, and it what wasn't was the there. the name of the story? The Terror. World of Terragor. The World of Terragor. So, any they, listeners, if you can find this book, let they us evidently know. have ants, and they gather in moots. Moots. Oh, so dear. we are going to have to. Yes, Douglas Anderson is a walking encyclopedia. A I mean, library. I would like a library. I would like to sit down and just like yeah. you know do a brain dump with the guy, you know, like yeah. like we're doing now. Just sit him down and just ask him all this stuff. He's amazing. More like a card catalog, right? He is. Yes, <laughs> he is. And he actually gave the keynote address, right? It was a keynote speech. He's mm -hmm. one of the honored authors. And in that, again... And it was on Fairyland. It was on Fairyland, that's right. Amazing, something I love. We had him as a guest lecturer in a, in a class. Mm -hmm. And then I know we've seen, Chris and I have seen him in other um, conferences. And, it, and Deb Sabo, who's another student in Mythgard, said to me this morning... Every time you see him talk, he's got a different book list. <laughs> I know, like he this, increased my reading list. This book so list much. is just like ridiculously long. Right. If you can find them. If you can find them, that's right. Yes. So. That's really the value of coming to these conferences is having the chance to have these conversations with people that you've read their articles and now you meet them as people mm -hmm. and you can ask individual questions. And yeah. We've seen true. Berlin now at three conferences and. I feel like I could have her over for dinner any time. Well, you feel that way with Berlin after five minutes. That's yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> or Doug, too. Or Doug. Know, uh -huh. Yeah, really cool. Really great people. Yeah, we had some other ones, too. Um, oh, and the other one that I really liked was Anna's, I can't remember her last name. Anna Small? Anna Small's Painterly. The Painterly. Yes, that was, yeah, was very good. good. Um, yes, that was good, too. This yeah. was, what was the name? What's the title of it? Tolkien's Painterly Style, Landscapes and Lord of the Rings. Amazing. That I didn't was, think it was, was, was going to be what it was, and it was really good. Yeah, yeah she spoke about how it, Tolkien uh, paints the landscape as kind of a moving picture, uses a lot of verbs to describe things, and moves your eye through the picture. Mm -hmm. Much like you would look at a picture. Yeah, right. exactly. with, your eye with very few colors, too. Yes, That's a very right. limited yeah. color palette, which I thought was interesting. Like yeah. you would have a page of description with green and blue and that's it that's it but that's right. all the verbs give you the necessary information all the to show and everything else and she even used other examples from other writers to sort of show the difference mm -hmm. between yeah more, descriptions more static of, descriptions where right. you're just categorizing you're listing things right. as your description and also cliches Tolkien does not use cliches he if he does use a cliche he'll twist it around right like all that all wander that or not gold. lost or yeah, yeah. <laughs> all that is gold does not litter Whereas other authors will, you know, fall into that because you don't realize you're even writing it because it's so I much know. part of I told Anna speech. this morning, I said, well, Corey Olson has gotten me to pay attention to the poetry of Lord of the Rings, and now Anna has made me pay attention, is making me pay attention to the you know, prose landscape. So now I have to go back and reread yeah. again. <laughs> no, to pay attention to those. Did she <laughs> quote anything from The Hobbit in that? I she said no. Remember. She said they had not done The Hobbit yet. Okay. They have not yeah. done the And in the fact, poetry. Andy, Andy Higgins and I were talking with her, and Andy said he's now... He's kind of awakened, and she said, awakened in him the desire to go back and see in the early years where Andy's looking mm -hmm. if there's any.
anything like this. Mm -hmm. So um, it'll be interesting. It would be an interesting class at uh, at Midgard to do Hint. kind of style, <laughs> the style of the Lord of the Rings, talking about that's right. You know how Tolkien wrote landscapes, landscapes. how he wrote the different dialects for the different it's groups true. of people. Yeah. Yeah, that would be... But we talked about, was it you and I, Laura, talking about that he didn't really spend as much time describing people as he does the landscapes? No, he's very sparse in his mm -hmm. descriptions of people. You know, yeah. I mean, you don't even know what color Legolas's hair is. Well, it's obviously but white, right? Peter yeah, because it was in the movie. Because <laughs> in the movie. Well, and my paper, when I was looking at food, uh, Tolkien talked about specific kinds of food and described meals fairly well in The Hobbit. And by the time he gets to The Lord of the Rings... He leaves it very vague, and everybody has an impression of these large, lavish meals, but if you look mm -hmm. at the actual vocabulary that he uses, um, he says, and there was all the food they could eat. <laughs> That's it. And, and so in Rivendell, we don't know what they ate. We don't know if there, it was bread and wine or if there were haunches of beef. Right. Mm -hmm. Tolkien leaves it absolutely vague in Lord Or he'll of the say Rings. something like plain hobbity fare or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And not left up to yourself. And like. left up to yourself. And so yeah. he... So everybody walks away with an impression of what they think people ate, but if you really look at what Tolkien wrote, he didn't tell yeah. you. Right. And you've come to that impression based on circumstantial evidence rather than... Um, Interesting. Well, that kind of goes back to text. how he describes colors, yes. too, you know, yes. not really using it. He leaves a, it up to you know, your eye, your mind's eye, yeah. to... Similar to that, yeah. He uses a lot of adjectives. Like he'll use the color palette is limited, but then he uses all these yeah. adjectives around each color, and mm -hmm. like you say, leaves it up to your, you know, how do you define that adjective? Interesting. I'm trying to think if there was anything else. Was there any other? There was a really good paper. Unfortunately, it was at the same time as Andy's on um, philology, and it was also on philology, and that was a shame that they were. Scheduled at the same time, Eileen Marie Moore was looking oh, actually at French roots of words oh, interesting. of Tolkien's invented languages, specifically the Elven languages, and with the idea that he was such a gallophobe that he wouldn't have used French as one of the languages as a root language. And he, she's actually found some few uh, words that um, absolutely came from French, and they didn't come from Latin; they came from French, oh, wow. and uh, hmm. an early name yeah. for. Uh, a cat was something like meowy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so he used some sound things, but that was a very interesting paper. And, and Andy made a beeline to her right after they were both done. And oh, that's who was talking. Papers. Okay, yeah, yeah. Is changing. that yeah? That must be who was talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was very good. Actually, Carl Hostetter's paper was brilliant. Really, it was very good. It was on the breath of. Um, like breath and wind as uh, the conveyance of spirit from the gods or whatever. Um, that was great. I wish he had copies of it, but um, yeah, he even talked about Old Man Willow in that. You know, oh, how wow. Old Man Willow uses air and breath to spread his influence over the forest. I mean, I can't even remember oh, exactly. It's so good. So. Another of our classmates, Laura Lee Smith, gave a paper. She's already um, gone back to New York today, but her title was First Contact. Man in the Landscape of Torments in Paralandra, where she was looking at um, David, gosh, Lindsay that wrote Voyage to Arcturus, is it Lindsay? Anyway. I don't know. And, um, and C.S. Lewis's Paralandra, and how C.S. Lewis sourced Arcturus, but came up, made his story go in a different direction, but she looked at how their landscapes and their first contact with the natives on those landscapes was very similar. Interesting. And you could see the influence of yeah. Arcturus on Sherlandra. 
I'm sure she'll give you a copy. Yeah, oh, hers. You ask. The, I don't know. You could just, no, you first, could just ask her. Hers was the first talk on Friday, and she said I think she only had like three people. No, she, she had six. Oh, she had six. six people. She had double but, what she expected. Because people you know, haven't shown up people, yet. Yeah. Yeah. People yeah. Uh, haven't gotten here yet, so I know that we were stuck in traffic in Chicago at that time. So No, but she, she did say specifically that people who would like a copy of that paper just need to contact her and she'll share that with you. There All you right. go. Okay. All right, well, they're opening the bubbly, so it's yeah. time to celebrate. <laughs> so we're going to we're gonna sign off here from uh, from MythCon 44. But, uh, Bye. We'd like to thank Corey Olson for... Of course. For being yeah. the source for of all this. For being the inspiration for, for None of us, us would be here or know each other, probably. That's right. That's right. So. That's right. <laughs> and none of you would be you, listening to this podcast. What you have brought. <laughs> so is right. that good or bad? I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's good. Seen. It's good. It's good. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs>